So how is everybody doing today? Yeah. Exciting passage tonight. I was actually just thinking uh, while we were doing worship, because I'm so reluctant to do this passage tonight. I was like, man, I remember when I used to do youth ministry on Thursday nights, uh, we had three guys uh, that we were raising up as teachers. So we started this rotation, and and who knows, I would always, uh, I would schedule them for the chapters I didn't want to deal with. I was like, this is, this is a terrible chapter. I'll just make Josh do it, you know? <laughs> I can't do that. So, uh, so here we are. You can open up to Judges chapter 19. We'll go ahead and do this together. As soon as you get there, we'll go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for, I thank you for your word. I mean, even in the, the tough, just difficult chapters, there's powerful and practical truths that we can pull out. And I pray, Lord, that that's what would happen tonight, you know, that, that we wouldn't just walk away thinking, wow, that was a really heavy chapter but that we leave here more conformed to Christ, walking in love and truth and showing that love and truth to a world that's hungry for it. So Lord, I just pray that you'd have your way in all of our hearts tonight as we sit at your feet and learn from your word. And Lord, I thank you always for the opportunity to do just that every Thursday. I pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Judges chapter 19. I got to say Judges, as we're wrapping up the book of Judges next week, right? So we're, we're almost there to the finish line. It's one of my favorite books in all the Bible. But chapter 19 has just been this ominous cloud over my head ever since I decided to teach the book. It's just been looming there. I knew eventually I'd get here and I'd have to deal with it. Uh, but I just, I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't know any preacher that would voluntarily choose to teach on a chapter uh, where a woman, and from the best of my study, uh, from, from the best that I can see, uh, is, is a good, innocent woman uh, is just brutally raped by multiple men uh, and, and, and her own countrymen and left for dead and then dismembered by her husband. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a troubling text. Um, and uh, it, it just it shows the worst of what humanity is capable of. Um, and, and maybe what, what makes the, the worst text even worse is that it's not some pagan nation that's doing this. These are uh, the people of Israel. Uh, and it's their, their capacity for sin when they're living under this seasonal slogan that the book wraps up with, uh, where in the last verse of the book it says uh, that during this time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they saw as right in their own eyes. So it was, it's, it's a mighty, mighty horn. And you're blowing back there. I wonder... If that'll be picked up on the recording, let's hope that it is. Huh? It'll make this one worth listening to online. So, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's... it's... <laughs> Sorry, Heaven. Forgive me. I can hear it still. Look at that. That's exciting. Uh, but but it, it'll be the sour note that this book uh, concludes with, as if this story is the best picture of that verse, uh, of, of these people's testimony. If everyone in this society is just living according to whatever seems right in their own eyes, then I guess this is the story to choose to conclude with. You know, because it seemed right to these men to do this uh, to this woman. You know, and they thought, I'm, I'm free to do this to this woman because it satisfies me, it gratifies me. This is something that, that seems good for me. And, 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 and in their freedom, they, they brought... Uh, absolute depravity and division to their nation. And, and this week, this week we're going to see the depravity. And next week, we're going to see the division. 
and um, and that'll conclude this story that spans three chapters. But let's get into it in verse one. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim uh, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And in culture of uh, arranged marriages, it was not uncommon for a man to have multiple wives, you know, and uh, you would have your uh, official arranged wife, and this would be a wife of status. This would be your business partner wife, where the two families are joined together, and it's this uh, joint business venture of the two families uh, being bonded. And this was not a marriage of love. This was a marriage of economic sensibility. Um, so uh, if this man was, was not attracted to this woman, and he could afford the indulgence of uh, another female companion, then they would often take one as a concubine. And this woman, this concubine woman, would not be under the same strict marriage contract. She'd often not come with a dowry. She was just a low-status woman taken to live with a man in order to satisfy the needs of his husband. And it's not a, a stretch of the imagination to assume that this is exactly how this man saw his concubine uh, wife, so to say, that she was just an object to satisfy him. And in verse 2, she was unfaithful to him, and she left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. And and this is, this is an incredibly unfortunate uh, translation. In just about every English version, you're going to get something that says that she played the harlot or that she was unfaithful to him. But uh, it, it's drastically different in some of the older translations of the Bible, if you look at the Septuagint, right? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible uh, about a hundred years before Jesus was born. And, and it records uh, of this verse simply saying that she was angry with him, right? So it has nothing to do with, with her uh, playing the harlot and being unfaithful to him. She was just angry with him and she left. The Latin Vulgate, also before the English translation, says that she left him, not that she cheated on him. And, and Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, uh, records of this passage that, uh, that, that she was alienated from him. So it has nothing to do with the woman of harlotry. It, it has everything to do with just a, a house filled with hostility. And, and this translation is really unfortunate because it causes most commentators uh, that write about this passage to blame this woman for the fate that befalls her. And most of the commentators, when they're writing about this passage, they say, well, this, you know, in their dramatic point of application for this passage, and it comes off as absolutely heartless. They say, well, this is what happens when you prostitute yourself to the world. You know, when you put yourself out there as, as a whore of the world and you give yourself to the world, this is how the world treats you. It just takes everything from you and it leaves you dead and abandoned. And, 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 it's, and it's a terrible point of application. When, when you understand that this was basically an innocent woman, she, she didn't do what, what we might assume for her to have done. And, and the rest of the story bears out that conclusion. I mean, in this, excuse me, in this next verse, I have to take out part of my gum because it's starting to, starting to turn bad. And this next part of the verse, you know, it gets grainy and just, yeah, that's no fun. That's no fun for anybody. That happens to you? Is that heaven? Yeah, there you go. Not sneezing anymore. You're back. You're back in action. And, uh, and we continue in verse 2. After she had been uh, there for months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. And he had with him his servant and two donkeys. And she took him into her father's house. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's a little treat. Should I get rid of the rest of my gum? No, I don't want to. Now it's on the pulpit. Eric, has this ever happened to you? No? No? Do you often preach with gum? It relaxes me. It relaxes me. That's why I do it. Sorry. Um, so after four months, he went to get her back, and he brought with him two donkeys, and it says that he went to speak kindly to her. And, and he sets out on this uh, journey of hypocritical manipulation. Here's a guy. Uh, he sets out to be someone that he's not, to get something that he doesn't deserve. And, and, but you see here that he waits four months before he does it. And it's a small detail, but I think it's a significant detail. You know, four months beside, before he gets off the couch and decides, you know, maybe I should go back 
and get my uh, get my girlfriend back or whatever you want to call a concubine. Let's call her a wife because she's more you know closely related to a wife than she is to a girlfriend. Now consider the fact: if she had cheated on him, would her father have accepted her into his house? Of course not, because then he would have been uh, you know do the penalty of her adultery. He would have made her himself a partner with her. Now, if she had committed adultery, would he have gone after her to win her back? No, he would have taken her before the judges. She would have been executed because she had committed a capital offense. He goes after her, maybe after four months of playing the field very unsuccessfully, trying to find a substitute concubine, and, and you know, out there just pitching woo to the impressionable Israelite women, and coming up empty, he throws in the towel, and he says, I'm going to go speak kindly. And, and so he brings her a donkey, and it says two donkeys, so now they can have his and her donkeys, and it'll be a happy little couple uh, riding off into the sunset upon their donkeys. And, um, and in verse 4, we see what happens when he arrives there. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, and he remained uh, with him three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. And on the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave, and the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the girl's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, the father-in-law persuaded him, uh, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he arose to go, the girl's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. And then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up, be on your way home. Uh, But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards uh, Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. The passage has always been a mystery to me. You know, why doesn't the father-in-law want him to leave? You know, and, and it's, it's always perplexed me. And does he really like this Levite so much? You know, is, uh, does he not trust the Levite, you know, with his daughter when they're out of his sight? Is his daughter privately... You know, pleading with him. Don't make me go with him. You know, and it's, it's just, it's, there's so many possibilities and maybe insights into this uh, relationship uh, to be found there. And, and, and the best that I could find in the commentaries to an answer to this question is that, well, maybe it's just as simple as he's an old man and he's very lonely and bored. And, and that could be, that could be a reasonable conclusion to the matter. I mean, my uh, my mom, she retired uh, last last summer from teaching, right? It's been, is this the first year? Yeah. So it's, it's not even that that long. But she's old and she's lonely and she sends me multiple text messages every week. Hey, why don't you come up to the house and, and I'll make you something. And then when I get up there, uh, we have lunch and she's like, hey, this was really nice. And I'm like, yeah, I got to go. And she's like, oh, you don't have to go anywhere. Why don't you just stay? You can hang out and it's almost time for another meal. I'll make you dinner. And it's, it's and so now I got to stay around for dinner and she's like call Corinne you can both come up for dinner and you know and I'm like I, I really gotta go and she's like no, no play Monopoly you know and it's like I've never never played Monopoly with you in my life you know it's like what's, why now why why would you want me to stay this and she's like we got movies you look tired why don't you go upstairs to your old room and take a nap and it's like that's that's creepy you know <laughs> not 12 anymore but uh but you know that's that's you know that's how she that's how she is now. She's older, she's lonelier, she's bored, and she's like, you just got to stay around, you know, be be part of uh, be part of what's going on here. You don't need to leave. You never need to leave. Just stay here for all time. And she's already turned my brother's room into a nursery, and I find that even even more scary. And uh, you know, my children now they're never gonna be able to come home. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's, it's and, and finally he just says, I'm I'm done. I'm through. It's time for me to go. You just got to let me go. And he sets out. But it's already too late, and it's already uh, getting towards evening, and it's going to be dark, and this is a dangerous area to travel through when it's dark. And in verse 11, we continue the story. When they were near uh, Jebus, that is, the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. 
And his master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibbeth. And, uh, and he added, Come, let's try to reach uh, Gibbeth or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So the servant suggests, Let's go stay in this city. Right? And, and, it, and it's soon to be Jerusalem. But it's not yet. It's a Jebusite city. And he's like, I'm not going to stay with those filthy foreigners. They're, uh, you know, they're sinners. And, and then they're uncivilized. They're animals. I gotta keep on going until we get to the holy men of Israel. And we're gonna see what happens when he gets to the holy men of Israel. And maybe the story would have been just dramatically different if he actually spent the night in this pagan city and took the advice of his servant. Uh, but he pushed forward and in verse 14, so they went on and, uh, and the sun, uh, set as they neared Gibba in Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, and no one took them uh, into his home for the night. So here we are. The, the good people of Israel, they know how to treat a guest, and not a single person will take them in. And they're sitting alone in the city square. You know, and these are, these are, these are the people of God. They know all about hospitality. And, and they find themselves in a completely inhospitable atmosphere. And, and, and you know, and I won't stay. In a pagan city, you know those are terrible, uh, terrible, sinful people. You know they don't know how to treat a guest. And and the scary thing uh, to me, and it seems to happen more often than I, I think many of us would would like to admit, is is that when a guest can come in and out of the church without being greeted by anybody except for the one person that's assigned to greet them. Isn't that a scary thing to think about? And we, and we make people, you know, in the church have that job, don't we? It's like you're going to stay at the door and you're going to be friendly to people because they got to see at least one person that's friendly to them, you know. And it's like uh, I remember uh, as a new believer coming in and out of the church and for months, you know, I, I would say two words every Sunday and they were high and by and they were both to the person that would hand me the bulletin. You know, and I would come in and out, and I'd say hi, and you'd say hi. And, you know, it's like he's 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 paid to say hi, <laughs> and uh, and I'd be leaving. And he'd be like, hey, see you later, and I'd be like, bye. And you're you're paid to say I'll see you later, and and I would sit there throughout the entire service, at the beginning of the service, and throughout the service, and at the end of the service, and and I would I would and people uh, they they would they would see me, and I know you see me. <laughs> so 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 why why don't you talk to me? And 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 I gotta wonder how many people feel the exact same way uh, on Sundays coming in and out of our churches and 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 we we go to our services and, and we we sit with people that we know and after the service we talk to people that we know and it's it's so easy for us to just do that and be happy with that and be blessed as a result of that and then go on our merry way uh, it could completely. Uh, unaware uh, of, of how many people that we might have marginalized that have come into our city that we forced into the center of the city because we simply didn't talk to him because it wasn't our job in the church to talk to him. Well, and what a sad thing it is to think about that, that this is the story of so many people that pass in and out of our Christian community. And, and this was their story, and it starts with inhospitality, and it ends with just depraved savagery. And so we continue in verse 16. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Geba, the men uh, of the place where Benjaminites came in from his work in the fields. And, and when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, he told, or the, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? And he answered, We're on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. And I've been to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house, and we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servant, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. And it's a dark foreshadow cast on the rest of the story where the man says, you can come with me, 
You can stay with me, but whatever you do, don't sleep in the streets. But we continue in verse 21. So he took him into his house and fed the donkeys. After they had uh, washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. And while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. In a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, the men of the city gathered together, and what was right in their eyes was homosexuality. You know, they would say, this is right for me, so bring out the man so that we can have sex with him. That's, that's the right thing to do, according to them. In verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. Now, the owner of the house, he did what was right in his eyes, and it was throwing his daughters and this man's concubine to this pack of sex-crazed animals. And, and he observed that what they deemed right was disgraceful. And did you see that? It's like, but, but his, his solution, he thought was reasonable. You know, what you're doing is disgraceful. That you want to uh, take this man and have sex with him. Now, here's these women, you know, shove them outside. You, you can take these women, you can do whatever you want with them, as long as you want to do it with them, and that's the right thing to do. In his own eyes. And in verse 25, we read that uh, the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. So the husband saw what was right in his own eyes, and it was protecting himself. You know, this is what's right for me to do. And, and so it says that he took her, literally in the Hebrew, it means that he seized her with force, his concubine, and he threw her to these dogs, these men, and, and you can do with them whatever you think is right, uh, and, 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 and they just, and they, they have their way with her, and in the morning, they abandoned her. And he returned to her to win her back, didn't he? To prove his love for her. And when he got her, he proved that the only one that he really loves is himself. And he knew nothing of altruistic love. He, he only knew about egocentric love. And, and so he, he, you know, in, in order to protect himself and his own dignity, he throws his concubine out to these men. Uh, and she would be raped and abused all night. And in verse 26, at daybreak... The woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. And uh, and she returns after this night, but can't muster the strength to come inside the house, and she lays at the doorstep only to die there. And it says that the man got up to continue on his way. And it almost seems as if, if she hadn't drug herself home and fallen dead right at his doorstep, he would have simply left without her. Uh, he, he cared so little uh, about her. It was the journey that was important to him. This woman was just a lump on the ground before him. So he says, get up. Let's go. We, 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 got, we got stuff to do, and you can't just lay around all day. And, and she doesn't answer, and, and, and she's completely lifeless. So he picks her up and throws her on the donkey. And in verse 29, we read, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into... 12 parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel, 
everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day of the Israelites uh, came up out of Egypt. Now think about it, consider it, and tell us what to do. And this event will spark this kind of national upheaval that we'll consider uh, next week. But, but I thought with the, the remainder of our time together, we we spend it talking about just the, the the gross wickedness of these people during this time. When I sat down to study this passage, I was very surprised by what I saw. Um, in, in a story where a woman is just viciously raped and abused, and murdered, and then dismembered, uh, the focus of so many of the commentators was on the homosexuality of her attackers rather than on their atrocity. And it really surprised me to see it. You know, and maybe it shouldn't have, you know, because uh, homosexuality has become uh, such a, uh, an issue in the church today, uh, a great issue of contention that's discussed in the church today. And, and when I sat down, the, the, there wasn't long sermons written on rape and and the the effects that it has on a person and and how common it is even in today and 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 the dreadful consequences on on the human psyche and and there was none of that and and I have I have family members you know like immediate family members that have been touched by this evil and you can draw a line in the sand of their life and there's how they saw the world and how they acted in the world before that. And then there's how they saw the world and acted in the world after that. And it's fundamentally different. And, and there wasn't, I didn't read anything about murder. And after all, everyone knows that, that murder is a sin. And, and so we don't really need to talk about it. We don't really need to deal with it just to acknowledge the fact that, that it happened. And there was nothing about uh, dismemberment. And, and I don't really know what you could say about dismemberment, but, but it was, the, the, the historical fact was acknowledged and then quickly dismissed. And, and not, to, not to point out the mental state of the, the type of person that could do this to another human being, let alone a human being that he supposedly loved. It all is irrelevant, only to focus on the fact that these Benjaminites were homosexuals. They wanted the man inside of the house to have sex with him. And it seemed like, like a small detail to me. And maybe it seemed like a small detail to you. Uh, but, but according to what I read, it, it was an all-encompassing fact whose implications were far-reaching, influencing all the evil uh, in this chapter. And so I thought uh, what we would do is maybe take this opportunity to uh, form a response to some of the things that maybe you've heard concerning homosexuality, specifically uh, in reference to this story and what I saw in so many of the commentaries. Uh, let me begin by saying that, that homosexuality is a sin, right? And, uh, and that's, that's a fact according to the Bible. You'd find it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, uh, to substantiate that fact. If you want to discuss that, we can do that. And, uh, and, and I could talk at, at great length about that. And because homosexuality is a sin, it makes homosexuals sinners. But the fact that homosexuality is a sin and that homosexuals are sinners is not a fact that is unique to them. Romans 3.23 says, For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And what we're going to do is we're going to develop a sort of a, a systematic theology for homosexuality. So for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us are sinners too, right? And, uh, and I think what we all want to do uh, when we acknowledge this fact is to say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner and I'll give you that, but I'm not a sinner like a homosexual is a sinner, all right? And that's something that we all want to do. So we all want to distance ourselves from, from the idea of our own wretchedness. But uh, the fact remains that, that yes, we are. James 2.10, 
you'd write it down. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of it all. So the way that God looks at sin is fundamentally different from the way that we look at sin. We look at sin according to degrees. So you might have you know, told a little white lie. You know, but, but, but they told uh, just a blatant, bold lie. And I might have had an immoral thought. But you committed a gross, immoral act. But according to James, we're guilty of it all. So it doesn't matter what specific thing you've done or to what degree you think you've done it. We've broken the law. We've missed the mark. Categorically, we're a sinner. And that's plain and simple for all of us. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 is a good verse to remember. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of who I am chief. And the wording of that, it was never more apparent to me uh, than when I sat down to study it uh, for, for this sermon, so to say. Uh, where he says, I am the chief. He didn't say, I was the chief. And here was a man who was, who was intimately in tune with his own fallen nature. And he says, if you want to know about me, then the first thing you need to know about me is that I'm a sinner. I'm just like everybody else in the world, no better, no worse. I'm simply a sinner in need of a savior. And so we're all on equal ground before Christ. And now here's the point of it all. How does the Savior act towards sinners? How does he act towards us? What was that? Yeah, with nothing but unconditional agape love. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much... He loves us. That's how much he loves sinners. Not to condemn them, but to love them so much that he condemns himself on their behalf. And he and Paul both alike tell us to treat sinners the same way. Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 1, a verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with, a verse that I think everyone in the world knows and can easily throw back in the face of a Christian. It is to judge not, lest ye be judged. And the word judge there in the Greek means to judge unto condemnation. So Jesus is saying, don't go around condemning people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not my job to do that. The most famous verse in the Bible, uh, you know, in verse that, you know, even, uh, even before I was a Christian, I would see people hold up on signs at sporting events. John 3.16. And what does that say? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? What is the verse right after that? John 3.17. It says that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So we don't need to be walking around condemning the world. If God did that, we would be condemned alongside the world. But God didn't do that. He loved the world. He still loves the world. He shows grace and mercy and forgiveness to the world. And something occurred to me years ago, and, and, and the, the, the ramifications of that revelation have been far-reaching, uh, affecting my thinking in so many uh, different areas, where, where after I became a Christian, my mom became a Christian, and I saw her just berating my dad daily. And, and, and now her eyes are open to what sin is and to what God offers. And she would say to my dad, you need to, you need to stop you know, smoking. You need to, you need to stop, you know, cussing. You need to stop blaspheming. You need to stop wasting your life watching TV, pick up a Bible, go to church. You know, and she would just be, you know, just clean yourself up. Stop doing all this stuff. 
And it was this great contradiction in scripture that I began to see where Jesus would say, no, it's the sick that need a doctor. He's just saying this man is in need of a savior. When you're sick, you, you don't think, man, I really need to start feeling better so that I can go to the doctor. No, you, you go in just messed up. You go in with your, you know, runny nose and your, you know, high fever and your clammy hands, the whole lot. We're just gross, nasty little creatures when we go to the doctor. And, and you go there like that. And, 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 and all of that is the evidence of your sickness. Right? But you showed up at the doctor because you realized two things, right? You realized that you're messed up and you realized that he can make you better. Right? Because he loves you and he cares about you and, 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 and he doesn't look at you and say, ew. Why would you come here like this? You're sick and gross. No, this isn't the place to be when you're sick and gross. This is the place to be when you're perfect and healthy. No, he, he is the great physician. He acknowledges the fact that he is the, the cure for the ailments that afflict us. And it seems like we can communicate this truth to every culture of sinner, except for the homosexual culture. And, and it, it's confusing to me. It's perplexing to me that, that so often Christians have this mentality where it's like, you gotta stop doing that before you come in here. You, you, you can't do that and, 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 and come to him. You gotta change that. You gotta stop that and, 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 and any effort to alter before you come to him, it's just going to be frustrating and futile. You know, Sam gave me this book uh, a while ago, and it's called Loving Homosexuals as Jesus Would. If you ever, if you ever want to just uh, read a book in public and not have people talk to you, this is, this is definitely the book to do that with. I don't even think people would loan me a pencil at school when I was reading this book. I don't know if I want to do that. Come on, dude. It's just a pencil. But, uh, but he quotes in this book Philip Yancey, and he says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he talks about his experience at a gay pride march in Washington, D.C., and he witnessed a group of Bible-believing Christians shouting derogatory comments at a crowd of homosexuals from the Metropolitan Community Church, which accept for its position on homosexuality, embraces an evangelical theology. And Yancey was amazed when the group of homosexuals responded by facing their tormentors and singing the old Sunday school song, Jesus Loves Me. A group of homosexuals, and they're just being berated, they're being insulted by Bible-believing Christians. And, and they turn around and they sing, Jesus loves me. Yancey writes, the abrupt ironies in that scene of confrontation struck me. On the one side were Christians defending pure doctrine, and on the other side were sinners, many of whom openly admit to homosexual practice. Yet the more orthodox group spewed out hate, and the other group sang of Jesus' love. How is it that God's love is being shined more brightly by this group that is living this open lifestyle of what we would equate with sin. He goes on to say, even a basic study of Jesus' life reveals the irony of the way that many Christians have treated homosexuals. The Jesus who suffered persecution because he dared to love the very people that his culture oppressed uh, is the name Jesus who started, or is the same Jesus who started the revolution that today many lesbian and gay people have experienced as oppressive. Yancey writes, indeed, for women and other oppressed people, Jesus turned upside down the accepted wisdom of the day. 
by going out of his way to meet with Gentiles, eat with sinners, and touch the sick. He extended the realm of God's mercy. And I'll end with this. Every single lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender person who has become alienated from Jesus' love as a result of the fear and hatred that has been exhibited by those who claim to represent him needs to be shown that the real Jesus had nothing to do with such hatred. In fact, much of his time on earth was spent chastising those who exhibited such judgmental attitudes, referring to them as vipers and hypocrites. And I wonder what Jesus would say about the church today. I wonder, you know, have we become so right and dogmatic that we've forgotten how to love? And have we become so pious and righteous that we've forgotten that we too are sinners or are simply sinners saved by grace? You know, when I, when I first came to, uh, uh, to Jesus, <clears throat> I realized that I had a sickness. It was, it was apparent. It was very obvious. I was out drinking a lot and getting drunk and started experimenting with illegal substances. And I was hooking up with girls and no one had to shout at me, you're a filthy sinner. Right? No one had to make up signs, hold them outside my house and say, God hates you. That's how I felt every day. It took, it took one person, and it was actually Eric, sitting at the back, the handsome buff man, to show me that, that God loves me, and he could forgive me. He could heal me from what was wrong in me. And he could sanctify me, making me more like his son. And listen, an authentic experience with the creator of heaven and earth is the cure for sin. It, it changes us. I don't care. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're dealing with. And, and we all deal with different things and we're going to deal with different things uh, and, until the day that we meet Jesus face to face. I mean, Romans chapter seven, Galatians chapter five is more than enough evidence to, 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 to fall back on to say that we are not going to be perfect this side of heaven. We're all going to be sinners struggling with sanctification as God molds us and makes us more and more like him. And if we're talking about homosexuality, then it's important to note that, 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 you know, that homosexuality is a sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And so we don't need to treat them differently. We don't need to target them specifically. The best thing that we can do is love them and not be afraid to be called a friend of them. And just as Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And as they meet Jesus through us, as they experience his healing touch through us, they're going to have the same testimony as us, even as Paul records, right, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a verse that I, I know you all know. It's one of my favorites. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And I really wanted to end there. And, and maybe some of you are wishing that I, that, that I would end here. Um, but I, I just, I felt like I couldn't. And, and it's, I, I felt like when it comes to subjects like this, we talk so much about ideas and how we're supposed to feel. But we leave a huge deficit in actions and, and in wondering what we're supposed to do. And, and, and so I decided to go maybe a little bit further and make things maybe a lot more uncomfortable and, and read you a story. Um, and not so uncomfortable that we're going to like, I don't know. I was going to say something. I don't even know if I could. Yeah, without it crossing over to inappropriate. Um, so I recently read a book from Jay Baker and, uh, it's, it's his book, Fall to Grace. And um, in this book, he talks about how a few years ago, he opened up the doors of his church to the, the homosexual community. And, um, and it was during this time that he was doing interviews for his reality show and his documentary. Uh, and, and he was talking about how, as Christians, our handling uh, of the homosexual community has just been deplorable. 
you know, we need to love these people. We need to reach out to these people, not be afraid to be associated with them. Just as Jesus wasn't afraid to be associated with the sinners of his day. And shortly after these interviews, he got uh, an invitation from RuPaul. Now, I don't know how many of you know who RuPaul is, but he is uh, he's probably the, the most famous drag queen in the world. Uh, he's a very, very tall man that dresses dresses like a, like a woman and um, puts on these drag shows. And the invitation was to one of these drag queen shows. And it was, uh, and said, hey, you know, you, uh, you want to be a friend to the gay community? How about you come on out? And Jay Baker was reluctant to accept this invitation, as I'm sure all of us would be reluctant to accept a similar invitation. And, 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 but he began to see the hypocrisy in his reluctance. You know, here he was, and he had opened up his door to them to come to him, and he was okay with that. But now one of them had opened up their doors to him, and he wasn't comfortable with that. He didn't want to go through. So finally, he, he decided to go, and his thinking was, I'll just sit in the back, I'll disappear, and I'll be able to say, I went, and, and good for me. You know, and, um, and actually, this is, this is where we'll pick up his story uh, in Fall to Grace, and I promise It'll be a, a short passage. Actually, it's a couple of pages. Near the end of the show, a drag queen got up on stage and began spotlighting the famous people in the crowd. Dita Von Teese is here, and cheers went up. If you don't know who she is, uh, she's married to, or she might still be married to, uh, Marilyn Manson. And RuPaul is here, and cheers went up. And all of a sudden he said, Did anyone here ever watch the ministry show Praise the Lord? And I thought, oh, no, here it comes. But half the crowd raised their hands and cheered and chuckled. I think they were expecting someone to come out and impersonate my mom or something. Well, Jim and Tammy's son, is, it, Jamie, is here, the MC said, and suddenly this huge spotlight hit me. As I blinked into the blinding light, the MC asked teasingly, are you straight? Yeah, I said, blushing and pointed a thumb at my wife, Amanda. Lucky girl, the MC said. Right, because I'm so hot, I thought. Sorry, fellas, I'm taken. And then the MC got real serious, standing there in high heels and a sparkling dress. He said, you know, this is where Jesus would be if he were alive today. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And then he launched into a three-minute speech about how Jesus loved everybody without judgment. And then he looked back up at me and asked, Jay, are you still doing your church? Yeah, I answered. Oh, that's so wonderful. Best of luck to you on that. And everybody clapped. And there I was, stunned, not knowing what to make of this. One minute a drag queen was making cracks about whether I'm gay, and the next minute he was saying these really amazing things about Jesus and grace. And I looked over at Amanda, not knowing what to expect, and she had tears in her eyes. This is incredible, Jay, she said, in a room full of people where you don't know where, you know, uh, who believes what. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about his love and grace and how much they appreciate the fact that you as a preacher are here with them, that you're willing to come out to the show and share this with them. This is where we're supposed to be, she said. This is where God has sent us. And I realized she was right. That night in a burlesque club in Los Angeles, I saw people hungry for the love and truth of Christ. Not the judgment and rejection that they'd experienced their whole lives in the church, but the real deal, revolutionary grace. And I think that the world still wants that. I think that so many people are just waiting for someone to show that to them, that they're hungry for it the same way that, that, that I was de dealing with all my own baggage, just wanting one person to show me love and truth. It was the craving of my heart that I couldn't find anywhere else, that I was trying to satisfy everywhere else. And it's my prayer that we would be a people that would just give the world nothing but that. That they can find condemnation and rejection everywhere else. That we would be a people that just simply love them 
and daily live out the truth of who Jesus was before them. Let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for, for this text and, and for our time. And and man, it's it's yeah, it's not a not the easiest message. It wasn't the easiest message for me to prepare, for me to share. I'm sure it's not the easiest message for anyone to hear. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, that we would leave with a heart burdened for the world, for a world that we can identify with. Because we're all just sinners. We're all sick people that came to the doctor. We realized our need. We realized your sufficiency. Thank you, Lord, that you're working in us. That daily you're bearing with us. You're not condemning us. You're just pouring out your love upon us. And now because we're before you, we can receive that love from you. Be changed by you. Pray, Lord, for, um, for our community. Lord, even as there's, you know, a, a homosexual club in our community, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be afraid to be counted as a friend of any sinner because you're a friend to all sinners. You're a friend to us. And you're not ashamed of us. You just greatly love us. Lord, I thank you for that. Certainly we don't deserve it. You're wonderful in that you generously give it. So Lord, I pray that uh, that we would bring that same uh, generous gift of grace to this world that is hungry for it. Love and truth. And Lord, I praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.